Welcome back to Coaching Kernan. I'm Dave D'Agostino. I'm joined with my co-host and Hall of Famer, America's most beloved sports writer, Kevin Kernan. Also joined by one of our resident experts, longtime baseball man, current Colorado Rockies scout, Will George, and actually going to be our newest podcast host uh, coming up real soon with a pitching podcast, and we'll hold the name till we actually do it. This is episode 31, Real Voices of the Game, as part of our Coaching Kernan Podcast Network. We're honored today to have a special guest, um, founder, 32 years ago, founded Jager Sports, published, I counted 13 articles, uh, has a publication on throwing the baseball, also on the mental game. Alan Jager. Alan, welcome to our show today. We're really excited to have you. Hey, thank you for having me on. I'm really excited to do this and uh, looking forward to some deep diving. Yeah, and we're going to cover both. The, you're, you're, you're known very much for the, the Jager sports bands that I would, I would say three quarters of America is using right now. It's, it's everywhere. Every field I go to, kids have it, including myself. But we're also going to dive into the mental aspect of the game because I know you're very much into that, and that's the, the next push in professional sports, I would have to say, in amateur sports. So that's a, if you guys don't mind, that's the question I kind of wanted to ask first here to start on the, the mental game with Alan. Um, Sounds good. Yeah. What, you know, we, we hear all the common phrases, Alan, well, you know, pitch the next pitch, play the next play. And uh, you say it so eloquently that we, we pretty much maxed out what we can do with the human body, or at least we tr- we're trying. Um, and the mental part is really untapped right now. Um, what's, what's some of your thoughts on if you were to pick one thing that uh, kids that are in the audience or parents or youth coaches can, can pay attention in regards to the mental aspect just to kind of start us off? What's, what's one thing you would point them to to lock in on? Well, number one, thank you for the layup. It's almost like we talked about this beforehand and we actually didn't. Well, not to this degree, but um, yeah, this is uh, heart and soul stuff for me. This is actually where I started. Uh, I wrote a book back in 1990. That was really my first. I was a pitching coach at a junior college, but and I was loving it. Um, but there was something about the mental game that just pulled me and um and so, yeah, I felt like that was the uh, the first step I really took in the baseball community. As far as the main takeaway, I would hope anybody listening to this would really focus on mental practice. And what I mean by that is if you if you listen to any sports psychologist talk or anybody in, in mental training or life management skills, um, therapists, you know, they're going to tend to talk a lot about strategy and philosophy and psychology, which is great. It's really important. We, we do as well. We, we love talking about what we call the process. Um, but what I like to say is where the rubber hits the road is, is the practice. Because if you look at anything you do in life, whether it's fielding a ground ball in the hole or learning to hit the ball the other way, to use two simple baseball analogies, um, how about opening up your face uh, on a sand shot with a club? I mean, it's it's practice. There's just there's there's just no other way of looking at it. So I would say to to keep this answer relatively short with some punch is that if someone's really looking to get into the mental side of the game, um, start to really look more at the practical side of having a daily practice, a meditation, a, a, a breathing exercise, relaxation, just things that are that you can do that are a practice to help you develop skills. They just happen to be mental skills. Yeah. No, I, I like that. Um, the next, the next part I looked at, you mentioned quiet mind. I think you equated to freedom 
being able to use pure instincts. What are some ways that uh, kids, I mean, college athletes, pro athletes, you, you've dealt with them all. What are some ways that they can develop that quiet mind to get to that freedom point or that pure instinct point? Yeah, I love it. Quiet is one of the most important words, I think, in the human vocabulary. It's one of the most important words to me. And uh, and I would just say that, again, it's going to come back to practice. Stop. You know, if if I have a three-hour practice plan, if I'm a high school coach or a college coach or a one-hour practice plan as a little league coach, and I'm not devoting part of that practice, it, even if it's five minutes, um, to helping human beings stop and know what, and feel what it's like to be quiet. And, and a lot of times, I think there's a misnomer there. You know, being quiet, people think you have to shut off all your thoughts. And the real art of being quiet, yes, in a perfect world, the mind would get really, really quiet. But early on, it's 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 also really important just to have the awareness, which is a word will come up a lot with me with also with life and mental training. And but to have an awareness that even if the mind is thinking, can you sort of like step back and be the observer and be the watcher so that you're not so engaged in what the mind is saying? In other words, you're not um, you're not going along for a ride. <clears throat> with the mind and the thoughts. So just the idea of stepping back and sort of being the quiet awareness behind the thinking is actually in a very powerful skill. So again, back to the question is, um, first and foremost, we just have to stop. We have to stop to, to, to get quiet. We have to stop to be aware that there is a space that we can create to start working on being quiet. I love that. And in today's world, it's so hard to do that. There's so many inputs, both you know, you have it in sports, but you also have it in our daily lives, whether it's social media or the number of different ways we can communicate. Um, that has a whole different meaning now than I'm sure it did back in 1990 when you started uh, started this <laughs> approach to baseball. That is a great observation, Dave, because my goodness, I've joked with people who, who have gotten into the mental training field in the last 10 years. And I said, you know, when I first started in 1990, I mean, there was no Internet, there was no social media. There was no cell phones. Um, it's hard for people to understand how much simpler, and we could go back to the word quieter, really the mind was theoretically. And uh, and so, yeah, and I think just one other thing that hit me about the word quiet, um, one of the sayings I like a lot about that, that I know athletes and human beings can relate to is the zone. And and so the zone is the what one of the main characteristics of the zone is the absence of thought, right? So you're basically in pure instinct mode. And so if we come from the premise that we're trying, that we want to be in what's called a no thought state, that's a, in Zen, it's called no mind. Um, it would make sense that um, we want to practice um, playing in that world of, of being quiet. So it, it just is another, another angle. And yes, with all the, you know, between cell phones and video games, social media, and use the word, you know, lots of inputs. Um, you know, the reality of it is, is that I feel like nowadays mental practice is, is more important than ever because we have way more stimulation than ever. I mean, you look back 30, 40, 50 years ago, uh, 20 years ago, um, the type of stimulation that's going on in the world compared to, to then, you know, it's, it's just so much greater. Will, you wanted to add something? I just, um, 
you know, as you said, you know, being quiet and uh, being in the zone, um, there's such an overload also now in baseball. And I know it might just be observational for me, but I see guys, because there's so much analytic data, uh, lose the moment of just seeing a pitch and reacting to it because they're, they're, they're processing data so much in their mind and they're not just playing the game. Um, and I just, I, 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 I think that that is great and the smarter we are, the better, but when the game starts, we have to be more organic to react to what's going on and allow, and allow that to happen. Well, as David said early on, Will, and it's an awesome observation and you and I have talked a little bit about this with, with metrics and versus feel and, you know, and, and the bottom line is, is that you know, at the end of the day, we're we're really trying to get to a place uh, where we trust our instincts, and and that's that's a feel kind of thing. And I've always said, with all the metrics out there in the world now, there's nothing wrong with using metrics and and and, and taking the information, but it's sort of like <clears throat> once you're getting ready to make a pitch, or once you step in the batter's box, or once you once you're about to address a golf ball, um, you have to go into just pure trust mode and, and really what, what you might call more unconscious mode. And so, yeah. as you know, Will, from all your experience of doing this, um, and look, I, tr I try to have, um, you know, I'm very open-minded and I, and I realize there is some definite benefits to, to data, but I think at the end of the day, we really have to get back to this idea of, of, of the data as a supplement. So use yeah. it as a supplement. But it's almost like if you look at this, you look you look at a pie chart. You know, I'm just throwing a number out there, but I'm saying, you know, it's kind of like maybe 80-20 feel versus data. And then once the game starts, you know, it's it, it feels a little bit more 100% feel. And maybe I'll leave three percent open for in-game adjustments or you know between adjustments. But look, I'm a at the end of the day, you know, we talked about the word quiet already a lot today, which by the way I love and. Well, quiet means there's there's no analysis going on in the mind in the moment. There's pure free. Look, it's David used the word said the saying earlier that I love, which is one of my lines from a, a piece I did. Quiet, quiet mind equals freedom. Freedom to me is the optimal state to be in as an athlete. I'd argue as a human. So if we want to be in a free state, then we don't want any. We don't want a lot of analysis going on. We want to be free of that. And the last thing I'll say is I, I use a bike analogy a lot. You know, first you have to learn to balance the bike and steer the bike and, and, and pedal the bike. But at some point you have to just ride the bike and that's a hundred percent feel as we know. So that, that to me is sort of how I look at this whole feel thing. Uh, those are great points. Um, you know, I, I said jokingly, I said, you know, now the players, it's almost like taking an SAT right before the game. <laughs> that does not quiet your mind to go play a game in my in, in my opinion if you if you have the data on on the starting pitcher plus the four or five relievers there's a chance you're going to meet that night and you gotta you gotta process this and you 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 didn't do it yourself someone else prepared it for you that's the other thing that I think I think we learn when we do it ourselves like when, when if I'm going to face, Kevin Kiernan today, I know Kevin's got a good slider. 
I know that. I've I've already learned that. But when somebody else told me that, I didn't really learn that. I didn't know what the break and the depth of the slider was. So I think that I think that's why we see, you know, on a given night, a guy take a 0-2 fastball right down the middle, and you go, "What could have he been looking for?" Yes. So. Yeah. And I love that you added in the piece that I've never thought of that. Well, I, that's genius. The, the thought that people are feeding you, you know, scouting reports and data. And even if it's accurate, so to speak, like you said, it's, it's not, you're not as connected to it maybe because you haven't discovered it yourself. And No, I, uh, I, I say jokingly, if I cheated on a test, I didn't learn anything. But if I studied my ass off, I learned everything. Yeah, yeah. And so I have a sense of confidence when I walk out on the mound of how I'm going to attack a hitter because I watched them take BP, the series. I took notes every night that I was getting ready to go pitch this series, and now I'm ready to attack that hitter because I know what I can do and I know what he can do. Totally agree. It's Look, I'm a feel person. I feel ultimately this comes down to your feel. Um, and part of the feel is, is, like you said, when you do your own scattering reports or you, you have your own uh, um, pulse on what's going on, or you, you've done, I'll use a legal term, my dad's an attorney, you've done the discovery, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> great, great analogy. Thanks. Alan, Kevin here. It's funny you talk about that because I think this is a good way to get into what we're doing because I think people's they're understanding, listening to this, that maybe your mind is a little bit more at ease. Let's accept this information. But I come from the uh, similar, you know, school of hard knocks from way back when, uh, 1969 high school coach uh, who also was a football coach. He told me something I'll, I'll never forget. And I've relayed this to many, many players and they, they've all loved it, major league players. But he said, if you think, you stink. And you know what? It turned out to be true. And I think that's part of what you're saying. So once you get past that point, how do you get to the point? And I'm going to start early here. I'm going to start at the beginning. Say you got an 11-year-old, 12-year-old kid. You want his arm to get better. And you want him to relax. And you want him not not to think about throwing, but just getting it done the right way. Where do you start? And, and how do you get it done on a on that kind of basis? You mean if I were to deal with an 11-year-old as far as freeing up his or her mind to, to throw? Yes, his or her mind to throw, but also the physical activity of getting a stronger arm because they really, in this day and age, you have a lot of kids who don't throw like they used to throw. Well, as far as the physical aspect to me, I mean, <laughs> you know, here goes the rabbit hole. But um, That's fine. I'm ready. You got to throw to grow. That's one of our hashtags on Twitter. You know, That's you, have a good to, one. you have to feed, you have to feed the arm like a plant. Um, there's no getting around it. You know, it's a little tricky with the younger kids because they're so supple. They can get away with not throwing as much, but I've, I've just found in my career and, and being around people like Will been in the game a long time. And I'm, I'm a, I'm a question asker. I'm a feedback guy. And I had a rubber arm. I threw things all the time. And it seems like the, the athletes that have the healthiest, strongest, most durable arms, I can't say this, you know, across the boards, and someone might say this is anecdotal, but I do have 30 plus years of doing this. But it just seems like 
it's the ones that love throwing. And I'm going to use just one example. I know it's I'm, I'm cherry picking, but um, but, you know, Max Scherzer is an example of someone who he just never really stops throwing. Now, he might only go out three days a week out to 60 feet, you know, for a month or two. But and, and this is something that Eric Cressy would know better than me. But the point is, is that um, I, I'm a firm believer. Randy Sullivan, someone I love to quote all the time. And I tap into Randy, who to me is really just he is so amazing at what he does. He's the, uh, the Florida baseball uh now he's called the arm armory florida baseball armory i believe but randy is like a cross between eric cressy and he's a great pitching guy and he says uh you know body's made to move so i think to answer the physical question first is is kids just have look i'm going to tell you what you already know you know the kids you need to get out there and throw you need to move play catch often. It doesn't mean you have to go out super far or throw super hard or pitch a lot. It just means play catch, you know, feed, feed the animal, feed the plant. And then on the mental side, I would say that they, my answer is going to be a universal answer, Kevin, really to everything, which is again, that the quieter you are, the more at peace you are, the more relaxed you are, the more free you are, the more you're going to tend to do things extremely effectively and efficiently and, and naturally and organically to borrow Will's words. So yeah, I, I think even at 11 years old, you can start to have these kids get quiet and breathe and slow down because A, it's going to help them most importantly in life, but B, it's going to help free them up as athletes. No, that's great advice. Thank you. Well, talk about. I mean, you you're, you had introduced us to Alan, and um, we knew him, we knew of him before, but you knew him a little bit more intimately than we did. Talk about how you first encountered him and, his, and what he's doing from a throwing standpoint. I just stumbled upon it in the late '90s, I believe. Um, I had friends from California that were in baseball that were either scouting or coaching, and they were telling me a little bit about it. And then my high school education kicked in of going and playing in Latin America and going over there and coaching and scouting and seeing all the Latin kids with the best arms in baseball and them throwing long. And me growing up as a young kid at the playground at my grade school, there was a tree that was 300 feet away from home plate in center field that I used to try to throw that <laughs> growing up. Um, and that's, and I would throw against the wall and I would throw and then I started digging on it. And then I was advancing the Braves and I saw, you know, their star pitcher stretching it out and throwing long. And I'm going, what what is this and how do I get a hold of it? Because I had a nephew that wanted to be a baseball player. And uh, my brother and I were able to get a hold of Alan's stuff and started it uh, with uh, – a junior legion team and uh with my nephew and uh some other kids and some travel ball programs in south jersey and all of a sudden we had a bunch of kids who were gaining arm strength and getting attention and getting college scholarships and you go this works <laughs> you know you know you got to use it you know you got to use it to grow it you know so i like i like that that's um now with with Alan, with your particular program, explain to our audience a little bit about the Jager bands and, and how a kid gets started using those. 
Yeah, well, look, I would put that under the topic of, of um, arm care and injury prevention, of course, to start with. So whether they use our particular bands or any form of resistant bands, number one, I have a, a background in yoga. So to me, I've always looked at resistance training, band work, even being in the pool. It's always felt natural and organic to me because it's, I don't know, there's something that feels just right about sort of the stretching and the, you know, kind of the, uh, the, the non-aggressive side of it. So I just love elasticity. I love range of motion. I feel like bands are like doing yoga in your arm, so to speak, or your shoulder or, and, and really technically your, your body. So, um, I would say number one, just for people to be aware that arm care and luckily nowadays it, it really does feel like it's part of the nomenclature, but I would still say it's something that should be done before you touch a ball every time. It's not like 30% of the time. It's not like I'll do my bands a couple times a week. It, it is a precursor to throwing. And one of the reasons I love bands before I throw is, and I actually play tennis, you know, like three times a week. So I, I do it before I play tennis. But to me, I just feel like before I touch a ball, I'm already hot and warm and lathered and i feel like my, i i feel like i've already let's say thrown 15 minutes with light effort um i just have such a great base it, it's just it's a visceral feeling it's not a feeling like i feel sort of good i i feel incredibly good and also i feel like what that does is it helps to optimize the throwing session itself in other words i feel like you're going to throw easier freer higher further longer with more if, if you're in shape to then do the pull downs and, and and throw with more aggression more more freely more safely and then here's the kicker you're going to recover better the next day because of all of those 10 things i just said and to me it all starts with the bands because now now someone else may add to that and say well i also do some underloading overloading plyos and, and, and you know body tube i'm there's many things out there. And, and again, I haven't tried them all, so I can't speak from that experience. But I will just say this as someone that's done bands now for 20 plus years or, or, or 25, whatever it is, uh, those things are just magical. And it has nothing to do with it because there are bands. I'm talking about resistance training and band work in general. So whether you get our bands or somebody else's bands, bands to me, I can't explain it. There is something magical about them. So I would just say as an overview to look at arm care in general as a priority before you touch a ball. And also, last thing I'll say is this. There are a lot of dead periods throughout the year, as people know. And let's say you're in a period where you don't throw for six weeks. Um, now, again, maybe the little ones can get away with it because they're more supple. But once you start hitting 13, 14, 15, like to me, we don't really have a full-on rest period. You, you might, if you took a month off and did nothing or six weeks off and did nothing, I'm not saying it's the end of the world, um, but we, we'd even say the, the, the rest period would still involve what we call active rest. You know, maybe, maybe doing band work even three or four days a week, light bands, just to kind of keep the body moving, keep the blood flowing, keep the small muscles sort of active and working. Um, so that's another reason why bands to me are so so beneficial is that you can apply them during periods of of the year. Uh, maybe you live in Maine and you can't get outside for three months. Well, 
You can do band work six, seven days a week. You can do forward throwing motion with the band to simulate actually throwing because the resistance, if you keep it light enough, it actually helps you feel like you're, you're making a lot of low intent throws and you're getting a good massage in the arm. Um, you go on the road and you're in a hotel room, you get rained out that day, next game, next day at a, in a game and you need, you're desperate to get a throwing in, you can, you can crush your bands. And I, when I mean crush them, I mean, you can do a lot of band work, not just for maintenance, but you can do band work for like forward throwing action to where you're actually simulating throwing. And you can, do, excuse me, you can do two, three, four sets of 25 reps of the forward throws, which in essence is going to give you the cessation of, of getting a pretty good throw in that day. So there's so much to the bands. And I think the reason why they've gotten so popular is because it's, there's a visceral effect when you use them and they sell themselves. In other words, they feel so good to you. You want to, it's like when you hear a great album, which I'm dating myself, but if you hear a great album and it blows you away, you're going to tell your friends, like, you got to get this album. It is so good. And to me, I feel like that's why bands, whether they're our bands or anybody's bands, I think that's why band work now has gotten so popular. You're in the right crowd to talk about albums. We all get it. We understand. <laughs> Huge music guy. Yeah. And along those lines, and I pre-apologize asking this because you probably answered it a million times, but I'm just curious, how did you come across the bands and, and develop them? How did that all begin? Because I, I think it's, uh, you know, you really, you really created something that's special. Yeah, well, first of all, I'm going to give a shout out to to Dr. Job and, and Dr. Curlin, and uh, I'm sure, you know, Dr. Andrews was part of that, that, that early movement, but, you know, there's very well-known Job exercises, and so I feel like band work was probably integrated as soon as there was anything known for rehabilitation or whenever rehabilitation maybe started. I think the first time, the first shoulder reconstruction was 72, the first Tommy John was 74, so you know, not that there weren't bands before that, but I think that's maybe when bands started becoming, you know, part of the culture. Um, but regardless, to really answer your question, Kevin, it's a very fascinating story to me because I happened to be out watching a player who was in our camp and I drove an hour to go to go watch him pitch. And there was a really, really well-known hitting guy out there who played at Cal State North where I played. He was an All-American. And he was a hitting guy, but he had an injury with the Twins in the minor leagues. And so he started doing band work. This is like early 90s. Okay. Uh, sorry, this might even be late 80s. And I'll tell you his name in a second because you're going to know his name. And, um, and we started talking, and he started telling me about bands. And he said, yeah, I use these bands for, like, overstriding, but they're also great. You know, like, like that's when I think we first – let me – sorry. Let me go back to the fact he, he did the bands with the twins. He couldn't believe, could not believe, because he thought maybe his career was over for all, all he knew. And he could not believe how healthy and strong his arm became. And so he wanted to bring this to the public and let people know, like, hey, this rehab stuff or prehab stuff really works. And so we started talking. And I'm a pitching guy. He's a hitting guy. And he's telling me about these bands. And I'm thinking, like, Luckily, I think at that time I'd already done my some yoga training, and so it resonated with me. So, long story short, that person's name is Perry Husband, and Perry is very well known for effective velocity. He created something called effective velocity, which has become very popular 
out there in the world. And so really it was Perry's sort of um, tool. And I think what we really did is we took the tool and we started promoting it and getting it out there in the world and, and making this like um, hopefully something that people see as a as a prerequisite really to throwing. And so Perry was really to answer your question, Kevin. Perry Perry was the one that was really doing that had this this actual apparatus. You know, we 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 basically made the wrist cuffs more comfortable. We changed the clip so it's stronger, but essentially it was really Perry's, I don't want to say if, if it was his invention because it might've been already out there in the um, design that it was in. But the point is, is that Perry was the one that really got me started on, on bands. And they were actually weren't even called, they weren't called J bands, they were called Weisolators back then. And we named them, Honestly, we named them J-Bands for Jager only because we tried a bunch of different names and we couldn't come up with one that we liked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, surgical tubing doesn't make it. You know, J-Band sounds a lot better. Yeah. Well, at the time, believe it or not, Kevin, I mean, maybe because J-Bands, uh, I don't know, maybe there's a J-Giles band. I don't know. But, <laughs> but to be honest with you, we really tried to come up with like a cool, like a, I mean, I, I think it, it turned out to work out really nicely because it, it's nice that it is the last name of our company, but we tried to come up with something kind of unique and different. And we just, we just couldn't, we couldn't like, we just couldn't agree. We couldn't find something that really resonated. And so we just defaulted to J bands. And so, in a, and I'm glad we are now because it's sort of nice because we were more than, J bands, you know, we're a throwing program, we're a mental training program, and we're yoga. So for us, we're glad that the J bands really are an extension of what we really represent. An extension is the right word. I think Will's yeah. got something for you there. Go ahead, Will. No, I was just trying to go with the timeline because uh, being someone that signed in '77 was a pitcher. We did no weights. We did nothing to take care of our arms, which all this does, and I'm paying for it now. I can't raise my left arm above my head. I've had a, had a torn rotator cuff, and I got tons of scar tissue in there. But um, I think like in the mid-'80s, you started to see uh, ankle weights as cuff weights, where guys started utilizing them, and that's when Dr. Job and – Andrews and all the different arm doctors were coming out with the benefits, but a lot of organizations moved slowly to use them. Like we never had them uh, where, where, where I played and nobody, none of our trainers knew anything about it. And then when I started coaching in 86, I started to see people utilize at least the ankle weights and do, you know, do all the different exercises with the, uh, with those. But, um, you know, the J bands are so much better and, uh, you can take them your whole life, uh, from, you know, just by where you stand while you're doing them as your arm gets better and stronger and better range of motion. So, I think the other thing too, Will, that I, I, I love about them is when I, when I first got a hold of them, 
I started seeing other bands out there, like one that had a baseball at the end and, and a lot of them that have handles. And I think mainly for, for physical therapy clinics, um, some were just the elastic, the elastic tubing itself. And what happened is anytime I would grab something, whether it was a ball or handle, I felt like there was tension in my arm and it was usually going to go either to my forearm, elbow, shoulder. And I, I've always felt like just like wanting to throw a baseball with a loose, relaxed arm or a softball or tennis yeah. or anything. And so the, what I love about our bands, you know, you put the wrist cuff on your arm is free and loose and relaxed and you can, you don't have to grab anything. And there's some exercises that are just like reverse throwing or external rotation, like anything going in the reverse direction. It, they're very difficult and to grab something, it's hard to stay actually in the proper technique. And so I, I just, it's not a self plug. I just, I love our bands for the fact that they have those wrist cups and they can just really free you up. Um, and so, yeah, so um, it's funny how this has all evolved because honestly, there weren't bands when I played. I mean, the last year I played was like the summer of uh, 86 or 87. I was in the Jayhawk League. And ironically, our pitching coach came to us and he had sand in a, in a tennis can. Yeah. And, and it's probably similar to some Job exercises, but I had not seen tubing until that point. I don't really think I remember seeing tubing until I met Perry, which might have been 93 or something like that. Um, hey, uh, I, I actually saw one time a 12 ounce can of baked beans being used with the Job exercise. Wow. <laughs> a trainer was utilizing that because it was 12 ounces, you know, and yeah. it fit, fit nicely into the guy's hands and he had guys doing it. And I said, what are you guys doing? What, what is that? So yeah. it's a can of baked beans. Yes. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> No, I, I know my high school coaches, my old high school coaches listening now, and he's smiling when you said the tennis cans filled with sand because that's what we used way back then too. He had us all strengthening our arms with that. Um, talk, talk about the throwing program, Alan, the long toss uh, program that goes along with the, the J-Bands training. You used a phrase, pull downs. Uh, kind of start from the beginning with our audience and, and take us through the starting phases of long toss. Yeah, well – Boy, I can I can go a good eight ten hours straight on long toss. Just just love it so much. And uh, to me, when I played, I long toss without even knowing there was a term long toss. I think I I think to answer your question, Dave, to, to start with is I want to go back to nature. I, I have a saying which is nature always wins. Um, I want to use nature to my advantage. If I'm if if a if a tidal wave is coming at me, I'm running away. I'm not going to try to fight a tidal wave. Nature is powerful. So long toss to me is nature. So I just want to start with a, that that opening. And what I mean by that is that if you were out of bed and there was not a throwing program anywhere and you didn't know what you were supposed to do or not supposed to do, you're going to throw the ball with some arc to start with and some height because what it does is it, it lets the arm stretch out and free up and what we like to call open up naturally and organically. Um, so long toss is really about this idea of, number one, listening to your arm. It's not a set amount of distance on any given day. Um, but two is to throw the ball out incrementally, slowly uphill. So... My first few throws, a lot of times I use the analogy to make it really simple of a, of a quarterback throwing a screen pass. So everybody can kind of identify with that. The idea of lobbing it, if you will, 
because you're not warm yet. I mean, now with bands and stuff like that, you are very, very warm. But you, let's just say you haven't made a throw yet with a baseball. So number one is we want people, when they first start to play catch, to throw the ball with some arc, to throw the ball with what we call really low intent. We actually use the, the term massage throwing. We want it to feel like a massage because the better you free up and open up and stretch out the arm with these nice incremental angles uphill, what happens is, is that the arm can now be in the most safe position to be, ex to be more aggressive and explosive on the way back in. So now to your question, David, about pull downs and long toss. So long toss for us is really about two phases. Phase one is a stretching out phase, which I just sort of talked about. So we move away from our partners with very, very low intent. The intent gradually increases the further we go, as does the arc. Um, you would only go out as far as you can go out on a certain day, of course. If you throw six, seven days a week through our, through a lot of experience on our part, um, it will take about two to three weeks for, let's say, someone 18 years and above to get out to their max distance. It might take two weeks for someone between 12 and 15, maybe 12 and 14 to get out to the max distance. The point is this, is that you do the stretching out phase only until you get to your max distance. And that max distance may change a month from now and six months from now. But for, for now, let's use a very simple example. Let's say you have a 15-year-old player Let's say the player has an, an average arm. Um, so let's say that um, through proper training and, and progressive building, let's say they get out to 200 feet is a really simple number. Well, it's going to take, I'm going to just say it's going to take 14 to 21 days to get to that 200 feet doing this right. Um, once they get through the stretching out phase and they've gotten to their max distance, they're ready for the second phase, which is the pull down phase. And for us, the, all the pull-down phases is, is it's coming back to your partner. We come in approximately 10 feet of throw. But the idea is this. You're taking your max distance throw. We're going to say 200 feet equals X. And we're going to take that X. And then we're going to come into 190. And we're going to still throw 200 feet. We're just going to lower the arc a little bit so we don't throw it over our partner's head, of course. And then we're going to come into 180. And we're going to throw it 200 feet again. And we're going to aim a little lower and so on and so forth. And that's the idea of pulling down, that you're taking your max distance throw that day and you're maintaining the exact same intent of your furthest throw, except you're lowering the arc. And, of course, you get to a point as you get closer and closer. We tell kids not coming much close to 70 feet unless you have a geared up catcher because I just say even for, for a disclaimer, 70 feet even with a geared up catcher, including a face mask. because as you get closer and closer when you get out to some of these further distances and you do maintain the intent, which is an art form, it's not easy to do this. It takes a lot of practice because people are not used to maintaining that full intent. They're used to actually decelerating on the way in, which opens up, opens up a whole other door to how you create more velocity because you're decelerating. But anyway, you come in slowly and slowly. And the idea is that because you went 200 feet, let's say at uh, 35 degrees uphill, if you're now maintaining that 200 foot intent at these, at let's say 70 feet, well, you're gonna basically have to aim 10 feet in front of your, your catcher for the ball to end up at thigh high with a 200 foot throw. Now imagine someone at 300 feet, imagine someone at 350. If you're at 350, 
and you're coming back in and imagine you get to 70 feet with a geared up catcher with a face mask. Imagine maintaining 350 feet, the same intent where you were, let's say at probably 40 to you know 40 degrees. And now you're actually having to figure out how to compress 350 feet into 70 feet and have the ball end up, let's say high, high or lower without decelerating one foot of that throw. And to me, that's, that's, that's how you build arm speed, arm explosiveness, leverage, velocity. So it doesn't mean you're not gonna build all of those from the long toss session itself. But what happens is a lot of people get all the benefits of long toss, the health, the conditioning, the range of motion, the feel, the athleticism. But then they come in and they pull down pretty well, like 80% because it looks good and they, they think they're pulling down and there's still some hair on the ball but they're not pulling down correctly. Pulling down correctly to me, if you talk about the art forms of art form and throwing a baseball, a true pull down to me is, um, it's very, very rare and unique for someone to be, in 32 years of doing this, it's, it's very rare that I've ever seen someone pull down correctly the first time, even if I tell them what to do, because it's, the mind is built to decelerate so they don't throw the ball over their partner's head or they play catch all day, or no one's really maybe ever told them what it sounds like or feels like to make their full distance throw with the exact same intent on the way back in. So that was sort of a, a smorgasbord, I apologize, but essentially long toss comes down to two things, stretching out the arm, and then once you get to your max distance over at some point, you do the pull down phase. And by the way, the pull down phase might be Monday, Wednesday, Friday. It doesn't mean it's every day. Um, and obviously, once you integrate mound work, your long toss sessions are, are, are affected, of course. Um, but the last thing I'll say regarding long toss is no matter what, you always listen to your arm on a given day. There's never a set amount of throws. There's never a set amount of time. There's never a set amount of distance. There's never a set amount of what kind of intent you should have. Um, unless you're not in shape yet, then obviously you shouldn't have any intent. And to me, those are like the main tenets of long top. Will, go ahead. You had a question. Yeah, no, it, that, that's fabulous that you went through each one of those points. And then from a uh, observational, someone that's watched kids do this over the years, the pull-down phase, when it's done right, creates carry on the ball, which ends up being spin rate now. And um, the other thing, everything in baseball is about rhythm and timing. When you become a good long tosser, you develop really good rhythm and timing. Your arm goes into its most natural slot when you're throwing long. So everything happens naturally when you're long tossing. You know, it's, it, it, it's funny, like over the years when you have pitchers who are trying to create leverage so they go to a higher arm angle, we used to take them out to long toss because their arm would fall back into their more natural slot and they would feel that and go, oh, my gosh. And then, you know, you, you, you know once you had some video cameras, you would go, now here you are on the mound, you're almost overhand trying to create leverage downhill but your arm's not in its most natural slot, which, which is where you are when you're long tossing. So like the, the, the beauty of your long toss program over the years, I've watched so many kids do it. They figure out their bodies. They figure out how to 
uh, develop a really good rhythm and stay connected to throw long and to properly pull down, you have to stay connected. All these buzzwords that we now hear just through the simplicity of your long toss program, Alan. Yeah, and if I could just add one other really quick thing to that is, and Will, thank you for sharing, because one thing when you're trying to, you know, get 32 years into a five-minute explanation, you know, it's hard to hit everything. But, man, did you bring up a couple of good points, because what it also reminded me of, Will, is one of my tweets I like to put out is your best mechanics come out of long toss, which is basically what you said. And another thing I love about long toss is it, it back to the word nature I mentioned earlier, it, it really pulls out your most quote unquote natural athleticism. It pulls out your most natural feel. One thing, another thing I've gotten from Randy Sullivan that I love, you know, when you go, let's say out to 300 feet, and you're incrementally slowly moving uphill, not only your release point is slowly going uphill, right? But your core is changing, your yeah. ground force connection is changing, your load on your quads, your load on your calves is changing, your shoulder tilt is changing. So in other words, like it's, it, Randy uses the term variability, right? Or variance, to, to me it's, you gain this incredible feel and your body is proprioception. You're in time and space and, and, and will you just use the word connection. And so I feel like long toss, it, it, it provides countless benefits. And a lot of it comes back to feel athleticism, timing, sync, and, and also a word we haven't used yet is accuracy. All of the, the variability, all of the feel, the proprioception, throwing the ball at all these different angles, uphill and downhill, to me, actually supports and, and positions you to have better feel, which is going to lead to better accuracy. Alan, you said so many interesting things there, but I want I want to hone in on one thing. What does it sound like when you're doing when you when you're doing your pull down properly? What does it sound like? Yeah, because you said the sound of uh, the pull down, you get the feel of it. What 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 are those components? Well, it feels like you hit a two out, bases loaded, down three runs, grand slam in the bottom of the ninth. It's, it's so that, yeah, hard to explain. My, my Jim, we talked about Jim earlier. You know, it's like hitting the lottery or something. It's a feeling that it's an art form, right? And, okay. and the reason the feeling to me is so magical is because until you do it, I would say, I would put it this way. Most people have not done it. Now, it doesn't mean people have not gotten on a mound or thrown a ball across the infield as hard as they can, so to speak, or with full intent, whatever term you want to use. But I will say this, on flat ground, knowing you're not facing a hitter, not, you're not throwing a runner out at home plate, um, there is something that happens when you have just spent all this time doing arm care, gradually throwing the ball uphill, stretching your arm out in the most optimal way, getting your body athletic and free, feeling that sink, and then moving back into your partner. Again, I'm just telling you from so much experience, the average athlete on the way in, they're just going to tend to decelerate because they don't want to play chase all day. People are watching. They want to make sure they get to their partner on a fly. Um, they've maybe never been told again, like, hey, maintain 
100% of your max distance throw right now. Like don't ease up at all. Even if it goes over the person's head or bounces 50 feet in front of them, it's sort of like a new concept, even though I know throwing has been around forever. So when you can get somebody to pull this off, it, the, the feeling, Kevin, is it's very unique because I feel like it's very rare until you know how to do it. It's like that saying, you don't know what you don't know. So when you finally do it, you just sort of enter this different place. And that's where I feel like people can start to tap into more velocity because you're kind of in a rarefied place for a rare, rarefied things to happen. The feeling is just, it's hard to explain, Kevin, but again, it's sort of like you've touched something that you just maybe have never touched before. And, and also the feeling of like the sync, like Will used the word earlier, you know, the timing and the sequencing it's just it's a it's a special feeling that's the only thing i can say is when you pull down correctly and it comes out of your arm the right way and, and your fingertips and the ball has as will will use the word carry i'll add another word life yeah there's a, there's a different kind of carry and life on the ball and i'm telling you i have stood in on so many guys pulling down correctly over the years with a lot of velo and even not a lot of velo in the jump on the ball and Sorry for the long answer, but we'll also use the term earlier about spin efficiency or, or spin yeah. rate. And yep. there's zero doubt in my mind. And I can't say there's not enough data yet, but I know two organizations that we, I've talked to about this. And they definitely feel like there's a correlation they find from throwing uphill into downhill with improving spin efficiency. And I don't think there's going to be any doubt moving forward that this is going to start coming out. So there's some data and metrics for the data and metrics people on the call. <laughs> but I do feel like uphill and the downhill throwing is going to show for sure in time a very strong correlation of improvement. Um, the, the, the sound is, uh, I'm not good at sound effects, but it's <laughs> because you're, you're, you know, first of all, uh, I always had kids do it for scene because you want those seams to work for you. And it gives you that, wow, you're really behind that ball. That ball's staying straight. It's carrying. It's got great finish. You hear that when those, well, yeah, when those fingers stay behind the ball. It's really neat to listen to. And then you just mentioned uphill, Alan. That's an old school thing. Um, the San Francisco Giants for years, when Les Moss was – uh, an old catcher that went from Houston over to the Giants, uh, and he had been with the Tigers. He was a pitching guy who used to have his pitchers throw on the backside of the rubber yep. for, for, for the pull-down portion of things. I still do that with kids in, the, in, the, uh, in, in our workouts. We do it with softballs in the wintertime, and – then they get on the mound and it's like, holy mackerel, you know, because you slow your body down. You, you figure out how to get on time to throw the ball down where you're supposed to throw it, which is what pull downs do in the long run. Which is so ironic, Will, because as you know, one of the knocks on long toss, maybe in the late 90s, early 2000s, was that it was creating different release points or you're forcing your shoulders uphill or your arm was going to drag or your release point was going to be late. 
um, which as you've heard from my other explanation earlier that we want all that because then it transfers into a benefit moving forward downhill. But regardless, the visual to them of throwing uphill and the release point dragging or being inconsistent was, was sort of a, a main angle, which I always love that conversation because I had like 30 reasons why you do want to throw uphill. And one of them is the same thing you said, Will. I think I heard this from Rick Peterson a long time ago that that's what he did as well. He got guys behind the rubber to throw uphill to get up, to help get over the front. What an irony to help get over the front side. Throwing exactly. uphill. So, Will, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a very cool reminder of why throwing you know, that, you know, that goes back to like 1980. Les Moss started doing that. Mm. You know, he was a big hand out of the glove guy as a pitching guy. He said, you know, you go watch a pitcher and if he's got lazy hands out of the glove, he's not going to be able to spin his breaking ball. He's not going to have carry on his fastball. He's not going to be able to sink the ball. But if he has quick hands and one of the things thrown on the backside does is it slows your body and speeds your hands up. Mm. And uh, to me, those are all good things because when I used to make trips to the mound, I would always say, hey, do less to do more. You know, mm -hmm. you're flying open, you're getting off the rubber a little bit quick, slow yourself down, take a deep breath, let's make a good pitch down in the strike zone. So, And then the guy would hit a grand slam. That only happened once. <laughs> I, I, and it, it was Bernie Williams, okay? <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it, you know, this is a magical conversation for everybody who wants to understand uh, a little bit more about throwing and pitching and everything else. I appreciate all this. Uh, we always, uh, before I throw it to Dave to end it, to wrap it all up, uh, we always like to ask this question here, uh, and, and you can answer it any way you want. It's an open-ended question, but it, it kind of fits the show. Uh, to you, what does it mean to be a ball player? Wow. Yeah, we don't we don't kid around here. Well, I'm gonna I'm not gonna put it in any order, but I'll tell you a few words that jump out at me. I I like word association. So, one the first word that jumped out at me was teammate. Um, the next word that jumps out at me is uh, um, work ethic, um, passion, inspiration. You know, a real passion and inspiring about the game and, and not just playing the game, but actually the preparation and doing the work is, is joy. Um, and I think someone that has a lot of integrity and character plays the game right. Um, and um, yeah, I think that's a pretty good start. No, that's, that's, that's perfect. That's perfect. Awesome. Yeah, we appreciate it. Alan, fantastic job. I, I, I love the interview today, which you gave us, and our audience definitely got smarter. And that's what we're all about here. We're trying to build better baseball IQs, and you certainly contributed that today. Audience members, please check out uh, Jager Sports. Please check out the J Bands. Really look into Alan's mental approach to the game. It's going to help you out. We gave a small, uh, we gave a snippet today of what he can bring to the table. As we always ask you guys, don't take our word for it. Do your own research there, but you're going to find a lot of great things that Alan can offer you as well as check out our podcast too. Will, you want to add something at the end? Uh, to anybody that is listening, Alan always gets back to people. <laughs> um, he is truly a good person who's always trying to help people out. Um, it took me a long time to reach out to him once I started a program, and I wanted to get more depth 
into what he was doing. And he called me and we ended up talking and we've been friends, really good friends ever since then. And he, he is always trying to help kids get better. So if you have questions, reach out to him. I know, you know, he may not get back to you the second that you send it, but him and his partner, they're, they're, they've helped so many kids over the years. It's incredible. So, yeah, if you, don't, if you don't mind, David, if I could just on top of that, Will, thank you. Um, because I do, I do go on retreats and stuff, but please let everybody know that um, our office, as Will said, they're just great at, at helping out. So if they go to jagersports.com, go to our info page, um, really they can send any questions there and the guys at the office are just fantastic. And so, um, so yeah, and thank, and I just wanna make sure I got my thank you for, for having me on. And I really enjoyed this discussion with you guys. And I thought you guys asked great questions and had great input. So I just wanna let you know, I, I'm very grateful for you having me on. No, and us the same. Uh, we appreciate it very much. Great job. You, you may want to get another intern. We get a, a little over a thousand downloads per episode. So uh, be ready. Our audience is very active. We get five to 600 emails per week in between shows. And uh, be careful what you wish for. They're going to be flooding that in inbox. So um, don't be off to blame it on Will. We, we welcome it. Our inbox, the guys at the office, they're animals. They're, they're awesome. great. Tom Thatcher, he's got a lot of work to do, Alan. I know you're going to sneak off for a little vacation here. so <laughs> I will. I'll let him know. <laughs> well, thanks again, guys. Great episode. Audience, please take him up on that offer and get as smart as you can from this episode. Thanks again. And uh, signing off here from Coach and Kernan Podcast Network, Real Voices of the Game with Alan Jager.